You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Today's message comes from guest pastor Shane Shaddix. Shane is the pastor for discipleship at Imago Dei Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For the kind introduction, just want to encourage you, man. I think you're very good looking, so don't beat yourself up. Thank you guys for giving me the privilege of joining you this morning. It really is such a, uh, a challenge, honestly, to me personally, uh, just to see how faithful uh, the Lord has been to you guys and is working in you guys. Uh, just spurs uh, me on to faithfulness, and I, I'm really looking forward to being able to go back uh, to our home church and uh, bring good news of how the Lord's grace is kind of permeating in this context and just working through you guys. Uh, and so uh, just thank you for your partnership in the gospel. We look forward to many more years uh, in the future of continuing to work together uh, to the end of just exalting Jesus, growing in Christ, and, and just really celebrating what he's been doing and wants to do uh, through these multiple congregations and, and wanting to, to, to multiply uh, and to see many more uh, uh, bodies of believers be planted in this city. And so thank you guys for your faithfulness and thanks for your uh, invitation to open up God's word. And so if you've got a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to the passage that was just read, 1 Samuel chapter 12. 26. There's a, a lot of text here, and so we're going to try to cover it somewhat efficiently. I told the guys last night uh, when we were having dinner that the very first sermon I ever preached was out of 1 Samuel. And uh, so this is somewhat of a, uh, a homecoming. Uh, this is somewhat of a just uh, my own maybe flaws and failures being thrown in my face because for that sermon I had a grand total of about three hours to prepare. I found myself in uh, on a mission trip uh, in Honduras and it was Wednesday afternoon when we were informed somebody needed to preach that night and I had just been telling that morning our team leader that I had been wrestling with this call to ministry and so it just it's kind of an experiment I was I decided to study God's word I thought if I was going to go into ministry I should probably you know study the Bible and so I'd been doing that for a couple months and 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 right after that that conversation this pastor came up and said they needed somebody to teach and the team leader said uh, well I know somebody who's got a sermon on on David and Goliath and I looked at him and I was like you're crazy and so he said no just take the afternoon and go study and so that afternoon I just poured my heart and my soul into studying about David and Goliath and, and prepping the sermon and that night I preached my heart out through an interpreter and for an hour I preached on David and Goliath and like five people were falling asleep just kind of like every 15 minutes including people on my own team and so uh, I cannot go to first Samuel without that just kind of uh, I hope my hope is my intention is that this is a different experience okay uh, I can't necessarily promise that but you have a role to play in that don't fall asleep please uh, we might go an hour but please just stay awake for my own edification uh, if you will so Adam, uh, Adam read for us the first 12 verses of uh, chapter 26. And, and as we read, I want to uh, maybe just back up a little bit and ask you a question to consider as we as we dive into this text. The question is this, uh, have you ever, ever found yourself to be uh, on the margins? Have you ever found yourself kind of on the outside looking in? Have you found yourself to be the outcast, the loner, the one that has been discarded? It might be in something as simple as being on the outside of a joke. Maybe you're like Michael Scott and you love inside jokes and you'd love to be a part of one someday. Maybe it's something a little bit more serious, right? Maybe that you've been uh, the object of someone's scorn or derision or rejection or abuse. Maybe you've been the one who's been cast out of a relationship that you valued. Maybe you just feel isolated, right? Most of us, I think, particularly in this season, can resonate with that, right? Some feeling of isolation or being alone, being unloved and unlovable, where we feel like we are on the margins of whatever group we ought to belong to, whether it is the city that we live in, the community that we, we come together with, the, the workplace that we value and enjoy, and yet finally, we, or repeatedly, we find ourselves kind of on the outside. Maybe you've been mistreated because of the color of your skin or because of your faith. 
Maybe you've been left behind at work because you refuse to cut corners or take advantage of other people, and you convince yourself that those people who do cut those corners or do take advantage, eventually their sins will be found out, and yet it never actually happens. You find yourself always on the outside, looking in, feeling alone. Maybe you're just tired. You wonder if family and friends and even God himself has forgotten you. You find yourself in some situation, some relationship, where you're asking the question, where, where is God in this? Where is hope in this? And you're at your wit's end. You feel like you're at the very end of your rope. If you resonate with any of those things I just said, then this text has something for you. In the text that we find ourselves in, it's, it's a series of, uh, in, in a series of stories about David being kind of cast out to the margins of society. He finds himself betrayed, accused, rejected, and on the run. And he's faced for the second time in just a few cha chapters with the temptation to take matters into his own hands rather than to trust God. See, when we find ourselves in the margins, when we find ourselves on the outside looking in, when we find ourselves on the, the, the butt end of a joke, if you will, we have this temptation to kind of seize control, to take matters into our own hands. And we are confronted with this choice. How will you respond to that temptation? How will you respond to this oppression that you feel? How will you respond when the opportunity is presented before you to, to turn away from the Lord, but instead just, just chase after what seems to be the quick and the easy solution? When we're on the margins, sometimes, sometimes we have the opportunity, well, we always have the opportunity, but sometimes we respond in, in faith and we can trust in the promises of God and the plan that he's laid out. And sometimes we find ourselves flailing, wavering in our faith. Our, our knees get a little weak and what we know the Lord is calling us to do, we can't quite walk in the faith that he's laid out. We feel like we're the ones who's been mistreated. We're the ones who've been cast out. And so we've, we're justified in our lashing out, in our seizing control, in our punishing those who are taking advantage of us. And we see any manner of sin as permissible if it just gives us the relief that we long for. David was faced with exactly this temptation. And in the two chapters that are before us today, we see that sometimes when faced with this opportunity, he, he can, can somehow rise above what is obviously laid out as an easy out in front of him. And he can instead turn away from the easy out, turn away from sin and trust God. And then at other time, his faith, faith buckles. It weakens, it wavers. So we've got this contrast in these two chapters. And so together, these chapters don't really point us to David so much as the God who he can place his faith in. And they invite us to always look to the faithfulness of this God. To always consider his presence and his provision and his power that is held out to us. And when we find ourselves on the margin, we can run to him and have great confidence that he is the one who purposes good for his people and always carries out his plan to perfection. That is the God that we worship. That is David's God who sometimes he walks with. And sometimes he doesn't. And so I just want to take the two chapters in turn. The first chapter really presents David responding to this marginalization in faith. And then the second one, chapter 27, he responds with some kind of a weakening and a wavering. And so let's look at chapter 26. And as we walk through it, I just want to point out four features of David's faith in his great God. Once again in this chapter, Israel's king, Saul, is informed of David's whereabouts. If you want to read a very similar uh, story, just go back two Sundays, right? Chapter 24, once again, uh, Saul is chasing after David. He's been informed about David, and once again, he comes to, to capture and kill David because he's, he's jealous of David's success, and he's been informed, Saul, keep in mind, your throne is going to be pulled away from you. It's going to be given to this shepherd boy, David. It's understandable that Saul doesn't quite like David, right? 
And so he chases after him. And in the first few David, we find David, or sorry, first few verses, we find David in hiding in the wilderness, and he's doing this kind of stealth mission. He's he's creeping up uh, on Saul, and he's kind of getting the lay of the land. And, and Adam read just a, a few minutes ago how they they see that that this this encampment is in front of him, and everybody is asleep. The first feature of David's faith in his great God that I want you to see is that his faith submits to the law of God, even in these difficult circumstances. See, David finds himself with this unique opportunity. Saul is is laid out in front of him. Quite literally, he's asleep. And he's got literally 3,000 men who are there to protect him. And the Lord has placed this this great sleep over everybody. And he's just kind of like looking around like, is this candid camera? Is this a trap? What's going on? But no, here's Saul just asleep in front of him. And he's like... I mean, I guess we should go down there. I don't know, like, what, what do you do in this situation? So we, he, he says, who's, who's going to go with me? And this one guy, uh, Abishai, says, uh, I'm going I'm to go with you. Abishai becomes one of his great mighty men, just a great character in First and Second Samuel. He says, I'm going to go down you with you. And David and Abishai go down. They creep in. And then they, it's, it's just almost comical, right? I don't know how thought out the plan was because of how it develops. Uh, but, but they're like, let's go down. And then they get down there and nobody's still woke. It up. And so you're just like still looking around like, well, I guess we do the next thing. And Abishai's like, well, obviously the next thing is to what? It's to kill Saul. He's right there. He's chasing after. He's the enemy who's pursuing you. He's the reason you're on the run. And David instead looks at him and he says, we're not going to do what seems most obvious in front of you. In verse nine, he says, do not destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Abishai saw an opportunity to take matters into his own hands. And the the only problem was that it just involved a little bit of treason. Right? Like, like, this is not a big deal, right? All you have to do, David, is kill the king. And how often is it that, that we are tempted in our marginalization, in our times of distress, in our times of oppression, to think that we can justify rebelling and sinning against the law of God because of our exceptional circumstances? We can always look to our circumstances and find something that justifies some kind of violation of the holiness and the the rule that God has given to us. The the law that he's given to us, the, the standard of righteousness in his character that he's given to us. Yes, that's good. We like that, God. Absolutely. But do you understand what's going on here? How many times in our own hearts can we justify our sinful responses Not because we think they're not sinful, but because surely our circumstances merit it. This starts very early, doesn't it? Adam said, I have four kids. What is the classic phrase, justification, that a kid will give when two kids are fighting? He started it, right? I've got a four and a five-year-old, right? And they generally get along really well. We did not teach them he or she started it, but they are very good. Dad, I know you said don't hit, don't scream, don't bite, whatever. But get this. As though this five-year-old or four-year-old is going to be able to reason with me. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, just go take a chomp out of his leg, you know? Like, what? that is not going to be the, the response. Why? Because no matter what your immediate circumstances have prevent, I, the, the, the rule of righteousness in the Shattuck's household that we've laid out for you is not just, just disappearing because they started it. We don't stop when we're kids, though, do we? We run into this all the time. Husbands, when you have the temptation to not love your wife as Christ loved the church because she doesn't respect you the way that you think she ought to. If she would only respect me, then I would walk in this way that I've been commanded to. Yes, yes, I've been told to walk in the way of Jesus and how I love my wife, but you don't understand. And we could flip it around to wives. You're not respecting your husband because he's not respectable. 
and realizing that the command of God is not contingent on our circumstances, but on his own holiness and his own character. Employees, when we, when we cut corners and steal from our, our employers or, or maybe do a half-hearted job, why? Because they don't value me the way that I'm supposed to be valued. You just don't understand how hard it is. And we can excuse and we can excuse and we can excuse. We can always find some justification in our circumstances to cast the law of God aside. And David, in his posture of faith, says, look, the opportunity is right here. We can do it. The only problem is this is the anointed king of God, and we will not transgress it. There's an opportunity for personal preference and even gain and advancement in front of David. I mean, you realize what's on the back end of killing Saul, right? David ascends the throne. Like, that's, what, that's the logical next step. It's like kingship. The cost was too high for David if it required his disobedience to the Lord's command. How many times as we read throughout the, New or the, the scriptures have God's people been given clear commands they felt didn't apply to them? In the garden. I mean, just to go back as far as the garden, right? There's just, there's one rule. I, we were talking about this yesterday. You guys remember the, the pizza commercial, right? Where you could uh, go in, uh, you could go into, I think it's Pizza Hut or something like that. And uh, uh, was it Pizza Hut? Do you know? Okay, yeah, one of the pizza places. Huh? Domino's. Okay, it's Domino's. And they walk in, and he's like, can I do the X, Y, or Z? And they're like, sir, there's no rules. And he's like, there's no rules? And he starts, he's like, there's no rules. And he starts taking off his shirt. And the uh, person's like, sir, you can't take off your shirt. He's like, there's one rule. Uh, so there's no rules about the pizza, but you can't, you, you've got to leave your shirt on, right? In, in the garden, there's only one rule, right? You can eat of any of the trees. Just don't, don't eat of this tree. And then all of a sudden, the justifications and the explanations and the exceptions start coming in. And the circumstances justified their rebelling in their minds. You could go to the golden calf situation. You shall not make any images of God. And yet, surely in this circumstance, surely in this circumstance, it's justified. And on and on we go. Even David is going to violate his own principle here. David's going to be shown to be a flawed man. And it's put into stark contrast to the Lord Jesus, right? When you think about the, the circumstances when, when he is tempted by the devil and the devil takes him and shows him literally all the kingdom, kingdoms of the world. It says, you can have all of this. Now, if there is ever success, just hand it on a silver platter. This is it, right? The devil is giving the kingdoms of the world to Jesus. And he says, here's the only thing you got to do. Here's the only thing you got to do. You just got to bow down and worship me. And Jesus is kind of remains the lone, faithful servant and king who will not seize the opportunity his entire life to, to take advantage of his circumstances, to excuse his own sin and rebellion. Friends, let me ask you, does your esteem for God's law, does your reverence for his holiness lead you to obedience in life's most difficult circumstances? Does your faith and trust in the God who has called you, who has named you, has brought you to himself, persevere even into circumstances when surely there should be an exception? Surely there would be a reason it doesn't apply. David's faith submits to the law of God. The second thing we see is that it trusts in the providence of God. I love in this passage, this, this great little uh, uh, dialogue between David and Abishai. David says in verse 10, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down to the battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. David doesn't have all the answers. Do you see that in this text? David doesn't know how this all ends. Right? We can just like flip a, flip a page. There's a, there's, the story continues. David doesn't have the benefit of that in the moment. Instead, what he does have is a supreme confidence in the providence of God. And that confidence in the providence of God provides for him kind of a sanctified imagination. Like, don't you, do you see this? Abishai's like, your enemy's right here. 
Like, you can do this right here. And David's like, I don't think we have to go that route. And he's like, you can't keep counting on these circumstances where Paul, Saul's life is just handed into your hand, right? Two chapters earlier, Saul is, goes into the cave to use the bathroom, and David's just like, is he seriously? He doesn't see us? Okay, we could kill him right now, and, and yet again, they kind of pull back. He doesn't strike the Lord's anointed. Here again, we have Saul sleeping. Everybody else is sleeping. We can take him, and he doesn't strike the Lord's anointed. And David, Abishai has to be saying, you can't assume that these circumstances are going to keep falling into your lap. We've got to take advantage. And David just says, I don't really know how this is all going to work out, but here's what I do know. As the Lord lives, it's going to happen. His, his imagination is able to go ri uh, run wild. Maybe the Lord's just going to strike him dead. Maybe the Lord just takes him out. Maybe, maybe he's going to live to the end of his life and then he's going to die and the Lord's going to preserve me and everything, carry out his plan. Maybe that's how this works. Maybe he's going to go into battle and that's where he's going to find his death. David doesn't have all the answers, but he does have a great confidence in the providence of God that it will carry through God's good purposes for David's good. That's where David's solution is going to be found. One of the unfortunate features of life in the margins, as, uh, as when we feel oppressed, when we feel ostracized, when we feel cast out, is that we tend to awfulize everything. Right? I think we all do this to some extent, and then we, we all know somebody who's like a master at awfulizing, right? And it's just like, um, you know, you walk outside, and it's like, oh, the sun is shining, and there's somebody's like, probably going to get a sunburn. You know, you're just like, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't know what to do, you know? Uh, I'm just trying to. So we've got, a, there are Eeyores among us, right? But the reality is that most of us, when we find ourselves cast out on the margins, we have the ability to just exaggerate and only focus on the terrible of the situation and we can't ever imagine how God might work through a situation. And I think what we see in this passage is that David's faith in the providence of God allows him to have a great confidence that the Lord is working good for his people. I don't know how. Can you imagine having such a, a resolve in the good providence of God that when someone says, well, how's it all going to work out? We can sit there and say, I I don't know, but God does. And that be sufficient for us to have hope and faithfulness in the face of these great trials. I can imagine the many ways God might be at work, and I don't know how it will come about, but here's what I do know. He is faithful to his promises. I don't have to seize control. I don't have to manipulate the situation. I don't have to rebel. Why? Because God is true. He is faithful. You know what? Let's count the ways he could do this. And then let's sit back and let's watch him work. Do you have your eyes open, expecting, looking for the way the Lord's providence is going to work out in and around you for the good of his people and the glory of his name? David's God is infinitely creative in his providence, and it gives him great hope. Third feature of David's faith is that it longs for the kingdom. It longs for the kingdom of God. David leaves Saul alive and he takes his spear, this, this great symbol of Saul's uh, kingship over, over Israel. And he takes also his water bottle because he was thirsty. Actually, I have no idea if, it's mean, if there's any meaning, but he's just like, well, there's water here, so like, let's not waste it. Uh, and, and, and once he's a safe distance away, he like calls back over the, the valley or whatnot. It's like, hey guys. And everybody kind of wakes up from their stupor. And then he begins to taunt Abner, who's kind of the captain of the guard, because he failed to protect his king. And he's like, dude, you had one job. I came in there, snuck in. Look, I got the spear. You know, like he's just, he's just kind of poking fun at, at Abner. And then he turns to Saul. And if you want to read with me in verse 17. This is what First Samuel, or this is what Samuel tells us. Saul recognized David's voice and said, "Is that your voice, my son David?" And David said, "It is my voice, O Lord, my Lord, O King." And he said, "Why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now, therefore, let my Lord the King hear the words of his servant." If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. 
But if it is men, may he be cursed. May they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go, serve other gods. In mounting his defense, David uh, asserts his inner innocence. He basically says, I don't think I've done anything. If the Lord's coming against me, if he's prompted this, then I'm sorry, I'm going to make a sacrifice. I don't think that's what's happened. If there's are men who are prompting you, or even in Saul's own heart that's causing him to go against David, let them be a curse. But my main problem here, Saul, did you catch it? Did you catch it in those verses? What is David's main complaint in these verses? It's not like, I'm tired, which is, I think, what mine would be, right? I don't want to live in the wilderness. I don't want to run for my life. Like, it's just not a fun way to live, Saul. His main complaint is the effect that this trial has had on him in that it removes him from the worship of the one true God. Right, the consequence of this exile, the consequence of him being cast out, is that the only kind of seemingly safe place I can go is to other lands where they do not worship the one true God. And my heart is set on the worship of my God. And it certainly doesn't mean that David can't worship his God in exile. What it does mean is that the people of God were called to gather together to worship Yahweh together, and David was going to be on the outside looking in. See, David had something probably similar to what many of you have felt. Many of us have felt over the last six months. Longing for gathering with the people of God to exalt his name. David's problem was that he wanted to see and participate and celebrate in the glory and the worship of God in his people, in his kingdom. His great concern is not primarily about his loss of security on the margins, but the loss of access to Israel's worship of their God. One temptation, another temptation that we have when we're at the end of our rope is that we tend to turn inwards. How many of you guys can resonate with this? When things start to go bad, all that you can think about is self. We see me, we see my problems, we see what, you know, we, in the awfulizing, it's all, it's all turned in, right? And that's not what David's faith drives him to do. His faith in the, the, the faithfulness of God, his main concern when he finds himself in the margin is not in, but it's out. It's actually looking to what the Lord is doing and saying, my main problem here is that if I have to go to the Philistines, which he does in the next chapter, then the worship of God is happening over here. And I'm going to be over here. His, his eyes are fixed on the Lord. His eyes are fixed on what God is doing through his people. And all we can do often is see how bad things are for us. And faith drives us not merely to look to improve our own situation, but to delight and participate in the kingdom of God. Really practically, friends, this is what this means. Is that even as we find ourselves on the margins, whether it's an per- interpersonal situation, maybe it's a cultural situation, maybe it's, it's some other, maybe it's a, just an intense feeling of despair and being marginalized, right? When we feel that way, when we experience that, we're going to have the temptation to turn inwards. But so much of our confidence in God, our faith in God, is going to propel us to turn outwards and be concerned for the things of God's kingdom rather than just the things of our kingdom. Right? Instead of focusing on building and preserving our own kingdom, we can turn outward and look at the kingdom of God and say, that's actually what I'm most concerned about. Extremely practically, let me just give you great encouragement when, not if, but when you feel the marginalization. Do not isolate yourself, one, from the people of God. God has has promised great grace. As God's people gather together, no, not every time you gather is it going to be like angel music and like there's, there's this, ah, you know, all that kind of stuff. You're not going to walk away just being like, man, there's just, you know, tongues of fire were descending. That would be awesome every time. That is not the experience. But what God has promised to do is to work through his people as they come together to build us up and to transform us into his image. Even as we find ourselves on the margins, do not separate yourself from God's people. Right? And then secondly, don't separate yourself from the mission of God. 
Don't separate yourself from what God... Yes, God is working in your life. He's working through you. He's going to sustain you. His promised good for all those who are in Christ. He is working for your good and for your deliverance. But that does not mean just because you're in the midst of trial and difficulty that the kingdom that must go on is like on hold. Rather, your good can be found in participating in that mission. You can actually find great hope and joy in joining with God in the advancement of his kingdom. That means even when you are feeling marginalized, tell somebody about Christ. And see how actually the Lord uses that to strengthen your own faith and encourage you. Tell somebody about the hope that you have in Jesus, even in the midst of your difficulty. Don't just wait until the difficulty's over. Don't just wait until he's already delivered you. Say, even now, in the, the midst of the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Because my God is with me, and the proof that he's with me is that he sent his own son to die for me. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also give us everything that we need? I am going through the thick of it right now. I feel like I'm on the margins. I feel like I'm isolated. I feel like I'm betrayed. And even now, the promise of God is that he will spare nothing for me. And my confidence of that is that he didn't even spare Jesus. We can have in our faith a great confidence in God because as we focus on his kingdom and not just on ourselves, the fourth thing I want you to see about David's faith is that it waits for the deliverance of God. In this dialogue, Saul recognizes that he's in the wrong, but he gives David really little comfort. Instead, David's comfort is in the promise of God's loving acceptance. You can read in verse 21, it says, Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. Notice he doesn't trust Saul. Verse 23. This is his great confession. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I will not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all my tribulation. David was, was presented with an out, and instead of taking things into his own hand, his faith propels him to wait for the deliverance of God. Saul offers a truce. And David effectively says, thanks, but my hope is elsewhere. My deliverance is going to come from somewhere else. David waits for the Lord's final deliverance. Think, think about how crazy this is. David's peace isn't found in either Saul's acceptance of him or in his immediate circumstances improving, but in the final deliverance that he will receive when God justifies him. That's where my security is going to be found. That's where my hope is going to be found. Thanks, Saul. I appreciate the trite comfort, but I've got another source of comfort. And it's more profound, and it's more lasting, and it's more sure than anything you can provide to me. The passage ends on this, this bittersweet note. On the one hand, we have a blessing from Saul. In verse 25, Saul says to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. It's even this prophecy that Saul kind of speaks over David. And so in one sense, we get this kind of resolution. But on the other hand, the two men part. The reconciliation has fallen short. And Saul's repentance is too little and too late, if it's genuine at all. This is the last time, the last conversation that Saul and David will ever have. Saul, Saul's about to die. Spoiler alert. Got a, couple, got a couple chapters, but that's what's coming. Saul's repentance, it's too little, it's too late. And David offers this staunch declaration of his faith. And yet as we turn to the next chapter, it's immediately brought into question. 
We're immediately like kind of marveling at David's amazing, staunch profession of his confidence in the providence of God, his confidence in the deliverance of God. And then immediately we turn, turn to chapter 27 and we see that the faith that seems so strong begins to flail. It begins to flake. It begins to weaken in verse 27. And we're not going to spend nearly as much time on chapter 27 as we did on 26. I just want to read through it real quick, make a few comments, and I want you to see how, how his confidence in chapter 26 turns to despair in 27. I want you to see how his honor and his virtue and his respect for the law of God in chapter 26 turns to deception in chapter 27. And I want you to see how his mercy turns to destruction and harshness. Right? The David that we see in verse 20, chapter 26 is almost turned on its head. No, no, not completely. I think that's one of the interesting things about his faith, right? It doesn't disappear. It just starts to crack. Because we see David doing some admirable things for the people of God in this passage. But the way he has to go about doing them is not from that same posture of faith and trust in God. It's taking things into his own hands and he's saying, apparently deliverance isn't coming anymore. I got this. You see it right at the beginning of, verse, of chapter 27. And David said in his heart, one commentator I read has this great phrase, we're all propagandizing ourselves. We're, we're preaching to ourselves a message, and look at the message that David is preaching to himself. Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeing me any longer with, uh, within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose, and he went over... He and the 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of Moak, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish of, at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, who we learned about last week, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. You see that David's confidence in the deliverance and the providence of God has turned into doubt and despair. And what happens when he turns to doubt and despair? He says, I better take control. It's no longer a Jesus take the wheel kind of situation. And instead, I've got this. Right? And it drives him instead to his enemies. And in this position where he's going to, there's just this cascade of errors and difficulties that come downstream of this. What happens in verse 5, let's just continue reading. I just want to summarize real quick, or just kind of blow through it real quick. But it says, Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns. Send me out to the boonies. That I may dwell there, for why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day, and the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines has been a year and four months. Doesn't sound too bad, right? David just gets a nice country retreat. Yes, he had this moment of doubt, but he gets this kind of quaint little town where he gets to go with his people and just hang out for a little bit. Hangs out there for about 16 months. Sounds pretty good, right? No, that is not what happened. Verse 8. Now David and his men went up and they made raids against the Geshurites, the Grizzites, and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as sure to the land of Egypt. If you don't recognize all these names, it's okay. Some of them we don't even know who they are. We do know who the Amalekites are. These are the people that, that Saul was commanded to actually drive out from the land. The people of Israel have been commanded to drive out from the promised land as part of God establishing Establishing his kingdom, his people in the promised land. The people of God have not totally driven out these enemies of God. And so David begins to take it upon himself, saying, I'm going to work for Israel's good through this series of raids. It sounds creative, right? Not necessarily the worst thing in the world if he's trying to advance the kingdom of God. But look what has to happen. Verse 9, And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive. But it would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments. And he would come back to Achish. When he practiced these raids, it was a take-no-prisoners take no situation. In verse 10, when Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? What's been going on? Who you killed today, David? David would say, well, against the Negev of Judah or against the Negev of the 
Jeremiahites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. All of these were people in Judah. What he's telling the king is, I'm attacking my own people. I'm attacking your enemies. I'm attacking my people for your good. He's lying to the king here about what he's doing. And the only way that it works, look at verse 11. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking lest they should tell about us and say, this is what David has done. So was his custom all while he lived in the country of the Philistines. You see what he has to do in order to cover his tracks, right? This is what that, that turning inward, that seizing things, in, seizing things in our own hands, taking control of the situation. When we lose sight of our faith and trust in God, we have to go to great lengths. We might even try things for God, but when we do it, we've got to do it in such a way that doesn't play by the Lord's rules. It takes things into our own hands. In order to do it, we've got to go to such extents that we've got to cover up our tracks. We've got to turn mercy that we've been showing. We've got to turn it into destruction and devastation and harshness on these people. He couldn't leave anybody alive because then the whole ruse would be revealed. David is presented here in somewhat of a sympathetic light. He's trying to do a good thing. It's not like he's just turned his back on the Lord altogether. What happens is the faith he was showing begins to crack. It begins to flail, and he begins to try to take matters into his own hands. I probably, we could probably spend time, this would be a great conversation for your small groups, to go around the, uh, the, the room and ask, how have you found yourself trying to take matters into your own hands, and it just spins out of control? Right? The faith that we just talked about in verse chapter 26, when we loosen our grip on the faithfulness of God, when we lose sight of His goodness and kindness to us and say, I don't know that He's going to come through. I better step in here. How's that work out for you? For most of us, it doesn't, doesn't go well. And we can sit here and say, my circumstances justified it. And we've already addressed that. We can say, well, I had good intentions. That's what David's got. He's got good intentions here. But in order to go there, he's got to seize, seize control for himself. And in the next chapter, you'll begin to see how this creates a little bit of a dilemma for David. And we don't have to get into it now. So where does all this leave us? What is the author of Samuel trying to show us? I think he's trying to show us a couple things. I think he's trying to show us, he's trying to commend David's faith in God, even in the most dire of circumstances. Friend, let me just encourage you, no matter what circumstance, no matter what margin you find yourself on, this God is faithful. That's what we're, we're trying to hold out. Not David. We're trying to hold out David's God and say, look at him. He is faithful. He is true. And I think he's trying to, secondly, warn us against losing sight of that faithfulness. We, our ability to kind of, to, to kind of dodge and, and we think we're fixing our eyes on God's faithfulness, but our ability to kind of lose sight on that is kind of incredible, right? It's like staring contest, you know, like if you're trying to just stare at somebody, it's like kind of a simple idea. And then at some point it like starts to like get in your mind, right? You're just like, well, I've got to look away, right? We set our, set our eyes, we're fixing our gaze on the faithfulness of God. We have this, this tendency to dart away and for our eyes to shift and he's warning us against losing sight of God's trustworthiness and his faithfulness. And he's thirdly trying to show us that David, while definitely better than Saul, still falls short of the king that Israel needs. David is not able to be what Israel needs. So much of God's plan to rescue the world from our sin and our rebellion is wrapped up in finding and submitting to the one true king. David's failure leaves us looking for another king who would live his life on the margins, despised and rejected by men. And what we read in the story of the Bible is that this future king, Jesus, would endure mistreatment and betrayal. He would suffer and instead of taking matters into his own hands, there's this beautiful passage in 1 Peter that says he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And yes, he longed for the future deliverance of his father. He longed for the Lord to take away the cup of suffering that was laid out in front of him. And yet, all the while, continued to trust in the Lord. And this king, Jesus, would be put to death. 
His deliverance would not come away from the suffering. But it is through his suffering that God would display his mighty deliverance to all people. It would come on the, the back end of his death and betrayal. The margins consumed him, if you will. And God's deliverance came not in rescuing from it, but in raising him from the dead. To defeat sin, to defeat death, and defeat the devil. And friends, here's the amazing part for us. Here's the amazing part for you and for me and for David and for all who would trust in him. Jesus' deliverance is ours. His rescue, the one he received, the rescue that he received is for us as well. This is the sweet message that we can hold on to as we find ourselves in the margins, betrayed, cast aside, left out, struggling, straining, holding on to just this glimmer of faith, is that Jesus Christ has been marginalized for you and for me, even to the point of death, and God still delivered him. And he invites us daily to trust in him, to follow him, to hope in him. <clears throat> Friends, Jesus' deliverance, his resurrection from the dead, his eternal life can be yours as well. Those who are united to Christ in faith are raised with him, Colossians with, tells us. We're already raised with Christ. We're seated with him in the heavenly places. <clears throat> and that's why no earthly marginalization. Hear this, friends. No earthly marginalization you will ever experience can separate you from the hope that is available in Christ. Because Christ's deliverance is already secured. It's already locked up. And if you are in Him, you are seated with Him in the heavenly places. Your life is wrapped up in Him. There are so many terrible things that can happen to you in this life. The marginalization that David experienced, that you and I can experience, is so real. I am not here to say it's fake. You just kind of got to rise above it. It's not that bad. It is terrible. None of that can snatch you away from the life that is already secured for you in Christ Jesus. This is an eternal hope that can never be wrestled away from, no matter what our circumstances. So let's trust in his faithfulness. Let's trust in his providence. Let's trust in his promise. And let's rest in the deliverance that we know is already secure. We're going to take uh, and participate in an expression of that trust this morning. The Lord's Supper is one way that Jesus' people continually affirm their trust in His deliverance. In taking the Lord's Supper, we confess that Jesus was condemned so that we could be accepted. He was killed so that we can live. The bread is a symbol of His body that was broken not for his own sins, but for yours and for mine. The cup reminds us that his blood was poured out to secure a covenant for all who trust in him to secure their salvation. Because taking the Lord's Supper, which if you're in the room is in your seats, is a confession of the faith that we have been talking about, it's meant for Christians. It's meant for those who continually do express their faith in this saving God. And so if you're not a follower of Christ, whether in the room or watching online, if you don't know the salvation that we're talking about this morning, we invite you to just hold off on taking the Lord's Supper. This isn't for you, and that's okay. You don't need to feel judged by that. This is just not, not meant for you right now. But instead of taking these, these symbols these symbols of what Christ has done. We want to hold out to you the Lord Jesus himself, this, this great testimony of God's faithfulness, and say your response to this proclamation, this kind of promise of God's secure forgiveness, is not to take the Lord's Supper, but it's instead to call out to Christ in your heart and place your faith and your trust in him. He is faithful to save you. He is faithful to secure you for eternity. And so this morning, in a second, uh, the musicians are going to come back up and we're going to, you're going to have an opportunity, just a few instructions. So it's prepackaged in your chair. You can see that. Uh, this might be new for some of you guys. We're doing this down in Raleigh as well. Uh, full disclosure, it, it's kind of gross. Um, <laughs> that's not the point. <laughs> just getting it all out there. 
the point is, is that as we take these elements, we're reflecting on the fact that the Son of God was broken. His blood was shed as a testimony of God's own faithfulness to deliver His people. And so you're going to do that in a second. We're not going to take it together. You can really take it whenever you want during the next song as the musicians come up. Uh, the way you do it, if you're not familiar, there's actually two tabs, right? There's a thin plastic tab that you can peel back, and there's a little wafer in there. And then after you take that, you can peel back the, the thicker tab, and then you can drink the juice. So uh, there's the instructions on that. Uh, just remember afterward, after you uh, take it, to put your mask back on before you kind of mingle and sing. Okay? So I'm going to pray for us, and then uh, we're going we're to sing and take the table uh, together. Father God, we thank you for your faithfulness. We're just reminded in a text like this, Lord, that you are a great and caring God. David is not presented as a fool for trusting in you. God, we are not fools for trusting in you. We confess our great confidence that you are trustworthy and true. And so, Lord, I pray that even as we take the Lord's table together, even as we sing, Lord, you would increase our faith and our confidence in the God who, who delivers and who saves, that you would increase our confidence in your own provision, and that we would see in our own lives, like David would, your deliverance and your provision, that you would accomplish your plan through him. Lord, we, we know and just confess that you, you have promised for all those who are in Christ that you will continue and complete the work that you've begun. You will use them for your purposes and so we just throw ourselves at your feet and we anticipate that you would use us in your kingdom to advance your purposes and you would work for our good and so Lord we ask you we cry out to you do that as we daily place our faith and our trust in you God I pray for anybody here tonight who when I ask if they feel on the margins they know their, their mind immediately goes to something very specific God I pray for this, this brother, this sister, this friend in this situation where they're feeling outcast, that you would just meet them in a special way in their, their state of need. God, that your presence would be just immensely sweet and powerful, that you would bring, give comfort to those who are, are hurting. You would rescue those who are, are struggling, Lord. God, I pray that though all of us are going to have so many difficulties and, and things that we go through where we're, we're just experiencing this, this oppression, I pray that you would sustain the faith of your saints. God, that even through these difficulties, you would strengthen us to not take control in our own hands, not turn to sin or to rebellion, not to lose our, our own confidence in you, but instead, Lord, to establish us in the faith. God, that we would walk with you, that we would live with you, that we would testify to your goodness in our lives. That your name would be proclaimed among the nations and that our good would be so readily found in knowing and being known by you. God, we know you are good for it. Find us faithful, Lord. Make us faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find another message or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church Podcast.